This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caitlin Sticko, Madison, Wisconsin, 2007. Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 9 The Rebel's Convict. There were when the purple gloom of the tropical night descended upon the Caribbean, not more than ten men on guard aboard the Cinco Yagas, so confident, and with good reason, were the Spaniards of the complete subjection of the islanders. And when I say that there were ten men on guard, I state rather the purpose for which they were left aboard than the duty which they fulfilled. As a matter of fact, whilst the main body of the Spaniards feasted and rioted ashore, the Spanish gunner and his crew, who had so nobly done their duty and ensured the easy victory of the day, were feasting on the gun-deck upon the wine and the fresh meats fetched out to them from shore. Above, two sentinels only kept vigil, at stem and stern, nor were they as vigilant as they should have been or else they must have observed the two wherries that under cover of the darkness came gliding from the wharf with well-greased rowlocks to bring up in silence under the great ship's quarter. From the gallery aft still hung the ladder by which Don Diego had descended to the boat that had taken him ashore. The sentry on guard in the stern, coming presently round this gallery, was suddenly confronted by the black shadow of a man standing before him at the head of the ladder. "'Who's there?' he asked, but without alarm, supposing it was one of his fellows. "'It is I,' softly answered Peter Blood, in the fluent Castilian of which he was master. "'Is it you, Pedro?' the Spaniard came a step nearer. "'Peter is my name, but I doubt I'll not be the Peter you're expecting.' "'How?' quoth the sentry, checking. "'This way,' said Mr. Blood. The wooden taffrail was a low one, and the Spaniard was taken completely by surprise. Save for the splash he made as he struck the water, narrowly missing one of the crowded boats that waited under the counter, not a sound announced his misadventure. Armed as he was with corsetlet, cuissarts, and headpiece, he sank to trouble them no more. "'Whist!' hissed Mr. Blood to his waiting rebel's convict. "'Come on now, and without noise!' Within five minutes they had swarmed aboard, the entire twenty of them overflowing from that narrow gallery and crouching on the quarter-deck itself. Lights showed ahead. Under the great lantern in the prow they saw the black figure of the other sentry pacing on the forecastle. From below sounds reached them of the orgy on the gun-deck. A rich male voice was singing an obscene ballad, to which the others chanted in chorus, Y estos son los usos de Castilla y de Leon. From what I have seen to-day I can well believe it, said Mr. Blood, and whispered, Forward, after me. Crouching low they glided, noiseless as shadows, to the quarter-deck rail, and thence slipped without sound down into the waist. Two-thirds of them were armed with muskets, some of which they had found in the overseer's house, and others supplied from the secret hoard that Mr. Blood had so laboriously assembled against the day of escape. The remainder were equipped with knives and cutlasses. 
In the vessel's waist they hung a while, until Mr. Blood had satisfied himself that no other sentinel showed above decks but that inconvenient fellow in the prow. Their first attention must be for him. Mr. Blood himself crept forward with two companions, leaving the others in charge of that Nathaniel Hagthorpe whose sometime commission in the King's Navy gave him the best title to this office. Mr. Blood's absence was brief. When he rejoined his comrades, there was no watch above the Spaniards' decks. Meanwhile the revellers below continued to make merry at their ease in the conviction of complete security. The garrison of Barbados was overpowered and disarmed, and their companions were ashore in complete possessions of the town, glutting themselves hideously upon the fruits of victory. What then was there to fear? even when their quarters were invaded, and they found themselves surrounded by a score of wild, hairy, half-naked men, who, save that they appeared once to have been white, looked like a horde of savages, the Spaniards could not believe their eyes. Who could have dreamed that a handful of forgotten plantation slaves would have dared to take so much upon themselves? The half-drunk Spaniards, their laughter suddenly quenched, the song perishing on their lips, stared, stricken, and bewildered at the levelled muskets by which they were checkmated. And then, from out of this uncouth pack of savages that beset them, stepped a slim, tall fellow, with light blue eyes and a tawny face, eyes which glinted the light of a wicked humour. He addressed them in the purest Castilian. You will save yourselves pain and trouble by regarding yourselves my prisoners, and suffering yourselves to be quietly bestowed out of harm's way. "'Name of God!' swore the gunner, who did no justice at all to an amazement beyond expression. "'If you please,' said Mr. Blood, and thereupon these gentlemen of Spain were induced without further trouble beyond a musket-prod or two to drop through a scuttle to the deck below." After that the rebels-convict refreshed themselves with the good things in the consumption of which they had interrupted the Spaniards. To taste palatable Christian food after months of salt fish and maize dumplings was in itself a feast to these unfortunates. But there were no excesses. Mr. Blood saw to that, although it required all the firmness of which he was capable. Dispositions were to be made without delay against that which must follow before they could abandon themselves fully to the enjoyment of their victory. This, after all, was no more than a preliminary skirmish, although it was one that afforded them the key to the situation. It remained to dispose so that the utmost profit might be drawn from it. Those dispositions occupied some very considerable portion of the night, but at least they were complete before the sun peeped over the shoulder of Mount Hillabay to shed his light upon the day of some surprises. It was soon after sunrise that the rebel convict who paced the quarter-deck in Spanish corset-lit and headpiece, a Spanish musket on his shoulder, announced the approach of a boat. It was Don Diego de Espinosa y Valdez coming aboard with four great treasure-chests, containing each twenty-five thousand pieces of eight, the ransom delivered to him at dawn by Governor Steed. He was accompanied by his son, Don Esteban, and six men who took the oars. Aboard the frigate all was quiet and orderly, as it should be. She rowed at anchor, her larboard to the shore, and the main ladder on her starboard side. Round this came the boat with Don Diego and his treasure. Mr. Blood had disposed effectively. 
It was not for nothing that he had served under de Reuter. The swings were waiting, and the windlass manned. Below, a gun-crew held itself in readiness, under the command of Ogle, who, as I have said, had been a gunner in the Royal Navy before he went in for politics, and followed the fortunes of the Duke of Monmouth. He was a sturdy, resolute fellow, who inspired confidence by the very confidence he displayed in himself. Don Diego mounted the ladder and stepped upon the deck, alone, and entirely unsuspicious. What should the poor man suspect? Before he could even look round and survey this guard drawn up to him, a tap over the head with a capstan bar efficiently handled by Hagthorpe put him to sleep without the least fuss. He was carried away to his cabin, whilst the treasure-chests, handled by the men he had left in the boat, were being hauled to the deck. That being satisfactorily accomplished, Don Esteban and the fellows who manned the boat came up the ladder, one by one, to be handled with the same quiet efficiency. Peter Blood had a genius for these things, and almost, I suspect, an eye for the dramatic. Dramatic, certainly, was the spectacle now offered to the survivors of the raid. With Colonel Bishop at their head, and gout-ridden Governor Steed sitting on the ruins of a wall beside him, they glumly watched the departure of the eight boats containing the weary Spanish ruffians who had glutted themselves with rapine, murder, and violences unspeakable. They looked on, between relief at this departure of their remorseless enemies, and despair at the wild ravages which— temporarily at least, had wrecked the prosperity and happiness of their little colony. The boats pulled away from the shore, with loads of laughing, jeering Spaniards, who were still flinging taunts across the water at their surviving victims. They had come midway between the wharf and the ship, when suddenly the air was shaken by the boom of a gun. A round shot struck the water within a fathom of the foremost boat, sending a shower of spray over its occupants. They paused at their oars, astounded into silence for a moment. Then speech burst from them like an explosion. Angrily voluble, they anathematized this dangerous carelessness on the part of their gunner, who should know better than to fire a salute from a cannon loaded with shot. They were still cursing him, when a second shot, better aimed than the first, came to crumple one of the boats into splinters, flinging its crew, dead and living, into the water. But if it silenced these, it gave tongue still more angry, vehement, and bewildered to the crews of the other seven boats. From each the suspended oars stood out, poised over the water, whilst on their feet in the excitement the Spaniards screamed oaths at the ship, begging heaven and hell to inform them what madmen had been let loose among her guns. Plump into their middle came a third shot, smashing a second boat with fearful execution, followed again a moment of awful silence. And then, among these Spanish pirates, all was gibbering and jabbering and splashing at oars, as they attempted to pull in every direction at once. Some were for going ashore, others for heading straight to the vessel, and there discovering what might be amiss. That something was very gravely amiss, there could be no further doubt— particularly as whilst they discussed and fumed and cursed, two more shots came over the water to account for yet a third of their boats. The resolute ogle was making excellent practice, and fully justifying his claims to know something of gunnery. In their consternation the Spaniards had simplified his task by huddling their boats together. 
After the fourth shot, opinion was no longer divided amongst them. As with one accord, they went about, or attempted to do so, for before they had accomplished it, two more of their boats had been sunk. The three boats that remained, without concerning themselves with their more unfortunate fellows who were struggling in the water, headed back for the wharf at speed. If the Spaniards understood nothing of all this, the forlorn islanders ashore understood still less, until, to help their wits, they saw the flag of Spain come down from the mainmast of the Cinco Yagas, and the flag of England soar into its empty place. Even then some bewilderment persisted, and it was with fearful eyes that they observed the return of their enemies, who might vent upon them the ferocity aroused by these extraordinary events. Ogle, however, continued to give proof that his knowledge of gunnery was not of yesterday. After the fleeing Spaniards went his shots. The last of their boats flew into splinters as it touched the wharf, and its remains were buried under a shower of loosened masonry. That was the end of this pirate crew, which not ten minutes ago had been laughingly counting up the pieces of eight that would fall to the portion for each for his share in that act of villainy. Close upon threescore survivors contrived to reach the shore. Whether they had cause for congratulation, I am unable to say in the absence of any records in which their fate may be traced. That lack of records is in itself eloquent." We know that they were made fast as they landed, and considering the offence they had given, I am not disposed to doubt that they had every reason to regret the survival. The mystery of the succour that had come at the eleventh hour to wreak vengeance upon the Spaniards, and to preserve for the island the extortionate ransom of a hundred thousand pieces of eight, remained yet to be probed. That the Cinco Yagas was now in friendly hands could no longer be doubted after the proofs it had given. But who, the people of Bridgetown asked one another, were the men in possession of her, and whence had they come? The only possible assumption ran the truth very closely. A resolute party of islanders must have got aboard during the night and seized the ship. It remained to ascertain the precise identity of these mysterious saviours and do them fitting honour. Upon this errand, Governor Steed's condition not permitting him to go in person, went Colonel Bishop, as the Governor's deputy, attended by two officers. As he stepped from the ladder into the vessel's waist, the Colonel beheld there, beside the main hatch, the four treasure-chests, the contents of one of which had been contributed almost entirely by himself. It was a gladsome spectacle, and his eyes sparkled in beholding it. Ranged on either side, athwart the deck, stood a score of men in two well-ordered files, with breasts and backs of steel, polished Spanish morions on their heads, overshadowing their faces, and muskets ordered at their sides. Colonel Bishop could not be expected to recognize at a glance in these upright, furbished, soldierly figures, the ragged, unkempt scarecrows that but yesterday had been toiling in his plantations. Still less could he be expected to recognize at once the courtly gentleman who advanced to greet him, a lean, graceful gentleman, dressed in the Spanish fashion, 
all in black with silver lace, a gold-hilted sword dangling beside him from a gold-embroidered baldric, a broad caster with a sweeping plume set above carefully curled ringlets of deepest black. "'Be welcome aboard the Cinco Yagas, Colonel Darling,' a voice vaguely familiar addressed the planter. "'We've made the best of the Spaniard's wardrobe in honour of this visit, though it was scarcely yourself we had dared hope to expect.' You find yourself among friends, old friends of yours all. The colonel stared in stupefaction. Mr. Blood tricked out in all this splendor, indulging therein his natural taste, his face carefully shaven, his hair as carefully dressed, seemed transformed into a younger man. The fact is he looked no more than the thirty-three years he had counted to his age. Peter Blood! It was an ejaculation of amazement. Satisfaction followed swiftly. Was it you, then? Myself it was, myself and these, my good friends and yours. Mr. Blood tossed back the fine lace from his wrist to wave a hand toward the file of men standing to attention there. The Colonel looked more closely. Gad's my life! he crowed on a note of foolish jubilation. "'And it was with these fellows that you took the Spaniard "'and turned the tables on those dogs. "'Odds wounds! It was heroic!' "'Heroic, is it? Bedad, it's epic! "'You begin to perceive the breadth and depth of my genius!' "'Colonel Bishop sat himself down on the hatch combing, "'took off his broad hat, and mopped his brow. "'You amaze me!' he gasped. "'On my soul you amaze me!' "'to have recovered the treasure, and to have seized this fine ship and all shall hold. "'It will be something to set against the other losses we have suffered. "'As gads my life, you deserve well for this.' "'I am entirely of your opinion.' "'Damn! You all deserve well, and damn you shall find me grateful.' "'That's as it should be,' said Mr. Blood. "'The question is how well we deserve, and how grateful shall we find you?' Colonel Bishop considered him. There was a shadow of surprise in his face. "'Why, His Excellency shall write home an account of your exploit, and maybe some portion of your sentences shall be remitted.' "'The generosity of King James is well known,' sneered Nathaniel Hagthorpe, who was standing by, and amongst the ranged rebels convict someone ventured to laugh. Colonel Bishop started up. He was pervaded by the first pang of uneasiness. It occurred to him that all here might not be as friendly as appeared. "'And there's another matter,' Mr. Blood resumed. "'There's a matter of a floggin' that's due to me. You're a man of your word in such matters, Colonel, if not perhaps in others, and you said, I think, that you'd not leave a square inch of skin on my back.' The planter waved the matter aside. Almost it seemed to offend him. "'Tush, tush! After this splendid deed of yours, do you suppose I can be thinking of such things?' "'I'm glad you feel like that about it. But I'm thinking it's mighty lucky for me the Spaniards didn't come to-day instead of yesterday. Or it's in the same plight as Jeremy Pitt I'd be this minute. In that case, where was the genius that would have turned the tables on these rascally Spaniards?' "'Why speak of it now?' Mr. Blood resumed. "'You'll please to understand that I must, Colonel, darling. 
"'You've worked a deal of wickedness and cruelty in your time, "'and I want this to be a lesson to you, "'a lesson that you'll remember, "'for the sake of others who may come after us. "'There's Jeremy up there in the roundhouse "'with a back that's every colour of the rainbow, "'and the poor lad'll not be himself again for a month. "'And if it hadn't been for the Spaniards, "'maybe it's dead he'd be by now, "'and maybe myself with him.' Hagthorpe lounged forward. He was a fairly tall, vigorous man with a clear-cut, attractive face, which in itself announced his breeding. "'Why will you be wasting words on the hog?' wondered that sometime officer of the Royal Navy. "'Fling him overboard and have done with him!' The colonel's eyes bulged in his head. "'What the devil do you mean?' he blustered. "'It's the lucky man you are entirely, colonel.' though you don't guess the source of your good fortune. And now another intervened, the brawny, one-eyed Wolverstone, less mercifully disposed than his more gentlemanly fellow-convicts. "'String him up from the yard-arm!' he cried, his deep voice harsh and angry, and more than one of the slaves standing to their arms made echo. Colonel Bishop trembled. Mr. Blood turned. He was quite calm. "'If you please, Wolverstone,' said he, "'I conduct affairs in my own way. "'This is the pact. "'You'll please to remember it.' "'His eyes looked along the ranks, "'making it plain that he addressed them all. "'I desire that Colonel Bishop should have his life. "'One reason is that I require him as a hostage. "'If you insist on hanging him, "'you'll have to hang me with him, "'or in the alternative I'll go ashore.' "'He paused. "'There was no answer.' but they stood hangdog and half-mutinous before him, save Hagthorpe, who shrugged and smiled wearily. Mr. Blood resumed. "'You'll please to understand that aboard a ship there's one captain. So,' he swung again to the startled colonel, "'though I promise you your life, I must, as you've heard, keep you aboard as a hostage for the good behaviour of Governor Steed and what's left of the fort until we put to sea.' "'Until you—' Horror prevented Colonel Bishop from echoing the remainder of that incredible speech. "'Just so,' said Peter Blood, and he turned to the officers who had accompanied the Colonel. "'The boat is waiting, gentlemen. You'll have heard what I said. Convey it with my compliments to His Excellency.' "'But, sir,' one of them began, "'there is no more to be said, gentlemen. My name is Blood—Captain Blood, if you please—' Of this ship, the Cinco Yagas, taken as a prize of war from Don Diego de Espinosa y Valdez, who is my prisoner aboard, you are to understand that I have turned the tables on more than the Spaniards. There's the ladder. You'll find it more convenient than being heaved over the side, which is what'll happen if you linger. They went, though not without some hustling, regardless of the bellowings of Colonel Bishop, whose monstrous rage was fanned by terror at finding himself at the mercy of these men, of whose cause to hate him he was very fully conscious. A half-dozen of them, apart from Jeremy Pitt, who was utterly incapacitated for the present, possessed a superficial knowledge of seamanship. Hagthorpe, although he had been a fighting officer, untrained in navigation, knew how to handle a ship, and under his directions they set about getting under way. The anchor catted, and the mainsail unfurled, they stood out for the open before a gentle breeze, without interference from the fort. 
As they were returning close to the headland east of the bay, Peter Blood returned to the colonel, who, under guard and panic-stricken, had dejectedly resumed his seat on the combings of the main batch. "'Can you swim, colonel?' Colonel Bishop looked up. His great face was yellow, and seemed in that moment of a preternatural flabbiness. His beady eyes were beadier than ever. "'As your doctor now, I prescribe a swim to cool the excessive heat of your humours.' Blood delivered the explanation pleasantly, and receiving still no answer from the colonel, continued, "'It's a mercy for you I'm not by nature as bloodthirsty as some of my friends here.' "'And it's the devil's own labour I've had to prevail upon them not to be vindictive. "'I doubt if you're worth the pains I've taken for you.' "'He was lying. He had no doubt at all. "'He had followed his own wishes and instincts, "'and he would certainly have strung the colonel up and accounted it a meritous deed. "'It was the thought of Arabella Bishop that had urged him to mercy, "'and had led him to oppose the natural vindictiveness of his fellow-slaves "'until he had been in danger of precipitating a mutiny.' It was entirely to the fact that the colonel was her uncle, although he did not even begin to suspect such a cause, that he owed such mercy as was now being shown him. "'You'll have a chance to swim for it,' Peter Blood continued. "'It's not above a quarter of a mile to the headland yonder, and with ordinary luck you should manage it. Faith, you're fat enough to float. Come on, now don't be hesitating, or it's a long voyage you'll be going with us, and the devil knows what may happen to you.' "'You're not loved any more than you deserve.' Colonel Bishop mastered himself, and rose. A merciless despot, who had never known the need for restraint in all these years, he was doomed by ironic fate to practice restraint in the very moment when his feelings had reached their most violent intensity. Peter Blood gave an order. A plank was run over the gunwale and lashed down. "'If you please, Colonel,' said he, with a graceful flourish of invitation. The colonel looked at him, and there was hell in his glance. Then, taking his resolve, and putting the best face upon it, since no other could help him here, he kicked off his shoes, peeled off his fine coat of biscuit-coloured taffetas, and climbed upon the plank. A moment he paused, steadied by a hand that clutched the ratlines, looking down in terror at the green water rushing past some five-and-twenty feet below. "'Just take a little walk, Colonel Darling,' said a smooth, mocking voice behind him. Still clinging, Colonel Bishop looked round in hesitation and saw the bulwarks lined with swarthy faces, the faces of men that as lately as yesterday would have turned pale under his frown, faces that were now all wickedly a grin. For a moment rage stamped out his fear. He cursed them aloud, venomously and incoherently, then loosened his hold and stepped out upon the plank. Three steps he took before he lost his balance and went tumbling into the green depths below. When he came to the surface again, Gasping for air, the Cinco Yagas was already some furlongs to leeward. But the roaring cheer of the mocking valediction from the rebels-convict reached him across the water to drive the iron of impotent rage deeper into his soul. End of chapter 9